Welcome back to another edition of Venture Studio. In this week's episode, Dave chats with company builder and angel investor Amal Sarva. Quick plug, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio, subscribe on iTunes, and listen on soundcloud.com slash venture studio. Amal Sarva co-founded several startups, including Virgin Mobile USA, Peak, Halo Neuroscience, Notable, that's spelled with a K, B-Maven, Notel, and he also helped build a building in New York City called East of East. He studied cognitive science for his PhD at Stanford with an undergraduate degree from Columbia. That bio is actually from his website, amalsarva.com, under the heading, The Short One for Conferences. For much more detail, check out amalsarva.com under The Long One for Obituaries. Amal blogs regularly at amal.sarva.co, and you can see a list of his investments at sarva.co. He's been called a renaissance man living in the 21st century, and he's one of the most helpful angel investors you'll ever meet. Put simply, and I'm quoting Dave here, this guy is a fucking heavyweight. Without further ado, let's head up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and Amal Sarva. In the office, baby. Amal, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Oh, I'm terrific. It's a pleasure, man. Thank you for asking me. Well, listen, um, today I'd like to get people to know what you're all about in terms of you as an investor. I mean, everyone knows you know, you're running a whole bunch of companies, etc. I've checked the sarva.co portfolio page, and do you realize that you're in about 40 companies by now? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it caught up to you. Tell us, how did, how did you first get into angel investing in the beginning? Uh, wow, that's a cool question. I used to say no. I used to say no to everything. Uh, and my little story on this is the fox and the hedgehog, which if uh, someone is not familiar, it is a concept really worth learning a little bit about. But the idea is that there's two kinds of people in the world, and maybe there's more, but one interesting way to, to divide the world is into people that are foxes and folks that are hedgehogs. And the hedgehog in the, in the famous line of the philosopher Isaiah Berlin, uh, he's quoting an ancient Greek text, the, the hedgehog knows one big thing, but the fox knows many things. And I think they're both like really productive and valuable ways to, to contribute to our world. Uh, I used to do it hedgehog style. I think mostly because I was raised to do that growing up. Uh, I think, you know, our schools and our professional training and stuff tries to teach you to just like do one thing and totally crush it and focus all your energy there. I found after my last company peak, I was in a position where I could sort of reflect on what did I want to do. I found that that was probably inhibiting me and it was making my life a little unpleasant. Like I had had these great experiences, Virgin Mobile, Peak. And I was starting to meet really interesting people, and people were coming to me, and I would always just say no. I was always a hedgehog. I got to build my cheap smartphone company. I got to build my cell phone company, whatever. And I missed out on a ton of great stuff, uh, reflecting back. A ton of great stuff, like, money-wise, but probably even more valuably just uh, really, like, game-changing, interesting businesses and people that I never got close to. And so at the end of 2012, I was sort of thinking... Let me revisit that old maxim and let me change. And so that's how I got back into it. People would come to me for advice, raising seed rounds, whatever, and I started saying yes to them. And you've said yes about 
38 times by now. I did some counting. You and I have said yes together about eight times, which is pretty cool. We are we're in a number of these great companies together like Grove and, and several others. Were you really a fox wearing the clothing of Hedgehog all those years? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, when I was running Peak, so from 2008 to 2012, for five years, I was the co-founder and the CEO of Peak. We made a simple smartphone, sold it all around the world, gathered acclaim from every publication and tech, whoever, anywhere. And it was a super hard job. I was in markets everywhere, and uh, I was working hard at it. But in that same five-year period, I built this building in Long Island City as like a side project which was intense and really insanely difficult. And as much as I thought I was being a hedgehog and just had this little side project, it was a massive real estate project. And um, over those five years is also the five years that, you know, me and my, my wife had our first two kids and we were sort of getting all that stuff going. And in the years before that, I've always had lots of different stuff I was interested in and kind of moving along and, you know, my blog or my whatever. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And so with clear eyes, thinking back on what I had been doing all along, I realized, wow, you know, I'm actually most productive and useful in certain phases of companies and businesses and certain parts of the thinking. And on a lot of other things, I just hate doing it and I'm not so good at it. I should uh, I should mix up a little bit uh, what I do. Mm. And I'll add another thing. So that's like a self-realization topic. Mm. You know, who are you and how do you operate? But there was another thing which was, I think, for me, a discovery. I had never had anyone tell me this. I discovered it, and um, I'm sure a lot other people already know this. I was late to finding this out. In startup life, because it is so uncertain, and because every day can be so um, terrible or so superlative and divine, it is emotionally draining to go through these, like, stretches of difficult um difficult work, you know, when things are not going your way. It's really intense and difficult. If you throw a few balls up and you're working on a few different things at the same time, there's always really nice news to lock in on and just keep mm. you kind of emotionally centered. I found it super rewarding. With angel investing, you are in touch with a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, you, you know, you're learning from each other. You hear more good news because it's so true. I mean, you can go for years uh, running one company and just, you know, good news is few and far between. Let's talk about some of these portfolio companies. I mean, I'm looking at this. You can't say from from an orchestral glance at it that there's a theme here. But maybe you can tell me. I mean, you are in a whole bunch of different companies. You've co-invested with, you know, some of the top firms out there. I mean, I see Maveron, uh, Viner RSE, Social Plus Capital, Andreessen, Homebrew, Harrison Metal, Suster, Bloomberg Capital, Formation 8, Y Combinator. Is there a method to the madness? What, what is going on here? <laughs> uh, I am not thematic, for sure. I'm definitely not thematic. Um, well, you know, I was informed by uh, thinking and talking about this topic and reading about this topic uh, mainly from Fabrice, Fabrice Grinda, ah. who... Uh, is a guy who was saying yes to a lot of deals and getting involved in a lot of stuff between 2003 and 2012 um, and experimented with a few strategies and was super open about what worked and didn't work. And I was just kind of watching what he was doing. Uh, I was watching the rise of the, the kind of Ron Conway, West Coast run and gun uh, ball game. And um, 
I was sort of thinking about it, and uh, I came. I decided. Well, one really important thing I took from the the Fabrice system was to have a checklist, mm. and uh, a checklist gives you some really clear criteria that that avoid you getting tempted into disaster, which is I think the most common way an entrepreneur can can end up screwing up deals. It's like you just love everything. You're a super optimist. Every problem is solvable. You just figure it out. A little bit more money, a little more time. Let's do it. And if you are um, not the guy, but an investor, uh, and you bring that attitude, I suspect you end up in uh, some bad situations. And so, you know, talking to folks and reading about some of the situations they had been in, I thought, okay, maybe I'll make a rule about that. And so I made a few rules. And one of the rules was, uh, well, and the rules more or less give you this this list. So the, the, the rules were um, take no inbound uh, deals. Like anybody who reaches out to me and is like, hey, I'm working on this company. You want to look at it? Never do it. Mm. Offer them help and be friendly and whatever, but just up front, just be like, no. The only source of every single situation here has been um, a referral from somebody that, that thought I could help the company or thought I might, uh, might like the deal. Right. So every single one. And that filter, that social filter, where intelligent people who I know well, who, who trust me but also respect me enough not to send me a bunch of garbage, those people, uh, I think they do all the work in my little system here. So I'm just kind of free riding on, on folks I know that send me good things. Um, so it means these are people who come and actually visit me in New York over, overwhelmingly. They know other folks that I know in common. And um, maybe they meet a few other <clears throat> checklist criteria. But that's why you see the things scattered so much across right. different topics and areas. Right. It's not quite Fabrice's nine-point McKinsey-esque you know, grid uh, but it is a heuristic that's been working for you. I do, if, if I look very carefully, I do perceive uh, a small theme. It, it seems like you like makers, like you like builders. Is that true? I see pl- plethora and Kimi and, and so many of these other uh, real tinkerers and builders there. Would, would you agree with that? People send me gadget stuff, for sure. Uh, they think I'm a gadget guy. I mean, when we started Peak... In 2008, nobody did companies where, like, the success of the company depended on designing hardware from scratch and then shipping it at scale. People really didn't do that, probably for a lot of good reasons. But we were sort of in the shift in the overall industry structure where it was possible to start doing that. And we were one of the early companies to do that. We made this beautiful device. Everyone heard about it. They're like, holy cow, Amal, how did you do that? How, you know, what are the steps? How do you go to China? Whatever. And... Um, I was known to a lot of my colleagues as, as somebody who was, was comfortable with those, those topics, and so I saw a lot of those deals. And I do like those people, yeah. And I do think those are really interesting opportunities. Um, but it's partly a reflection of just what's, what's in anybody's deal book. I think if you just look at any venture fund from the last three or four years, you'll see tons of gadgets and makers and hardware deals and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and you know, I've, I've seen you in action on, on a lot of this stuff. You really uh, roll up your sleeves... Um, and work with these entrepreneurs early. Uh, how do you look at your role? What What is your job when you invest uh, with, with an entrepreneur? Um, well, one of my other checklist criteria is to be in the first money round. Mm. And I think I've all, you know, maybe like a couple of times uh, departed from that. But I'll, I almost never do it if they've raised any money previous to me. Um, and that means when I show up, I, uh, you know, it's early, like they haven't done anything yet. They usually have a bad, bad business in, in the beginning. 
Um, and I offer however much help or support or ideas or whatever the, the team is interested to take. I mean, not everybody wants to spend a ton of time with me. There are quite a few companies where it's like a little annoying how they, how they operate. Um, and I, I don't agree with a lot of their stuff and they don't even really ask me. But there are some companies where I have great rapport with the founders and, and they really have, have leaned on me. Um, you know, my phone will ring on, I don't know, uh, 10, o'clock, 10 o'clock Eastern time a.m. <clears throat> and it'll be the founder who woke up super early in San Francisco and couldn't sleep all night because he had realized as he was going to bed that he actually was going to run out of money this Friday. Mm. And that guy will be like, uh, oh, dude, man, I screwed up. What should I do? (laughs) (laughs) Right. That happens to founders, and I've been there. I've done all. I've done every kind of, you know, I've made all many mistakes. And I also know a little bit about how to navigate a bunch of those things. And so some guys call me. I've also seen you work with them when it's time to fundraise. And you've reached out to a lot of your your venture friends, etc. How do you go about doing that, generally? Um... You know, you got to reach out to the right people. So I would say that the more important step comes before you write any emails for anybody. Like, is the company ready to go? Is Have they thought through their stuff properly? Are they actually in good shape or not? And if they're not in good shape, then what's good about it? And, and how can that be um, structured and, and improved in a short amount of time to make the company make more sense to folks? You know, when you reach out because you're about to run out of money on Friday, that's a useless way to raise money. Um, but everybody's got some some better story there. So you have to, you know, that the first part is just to work on it. And then second to think about who would be relevant to a company in that situation that's doing something. And uh, that's like all just from being active in the, in the, in, in other people's deals. So I, I have found that as I'm, I've done, made more of these investments and I'm involved with more entrepreneurs, like I'm, I'm more useful in that way. Um, so yeah, that's the first step. It's like, okay, what are we going to talk about? Why are we raising the money? Who should we talk to? Who would be interested? Let's eliminate all the people who are irrelevant. I got an email from a guy that we both know uh, earlier this week. He had like six or seven names, and three or four of them I just don't really know, so it's pointless for me to try to help there. Um, Two or three of them I think are definitely not a match, and so I was just like, you know, it would be nice, but I don't think these are people we should talk to. And only one remained as a relevant match, so I wrote to that person. so that's that next step, which is to inquire with folks and see if they'd be interested. I used to think there was some kind of real value in that kind of trusted outreach. I think there is some. I mean, it's much better than just like a cold email from a CEO to some venture partner. But um, folks make their own decisions. They assess themselves on you know what their interests are and whether, whether it's a match for them. They, everybody sees lots and lots of stuff. So I don't think I'm that important or that powerful a signal in the universe yet that when someone gets an email from me, they're like, oh, man, I better reply quickly. Otherwise, I'll miss out on this. Right. Maybe one day. Maybe one day I'll get to that. <laughs> right. And uh, philosophically, do you follow on or are you just the first round investor? Secondly, I, I notice you have an exit here with Elite Daily earlier this year. Uh, t- give us a sense of your, your approach. One of my other checklist things is to not follow on. And uh, that's mainly because of the risk of following on when, when it's a bad situation. And as a result, I don't get to follow on in any of the good situations either. So I end up getting diluted on things, um, which I guess is just a, a peril of the game. I know there are other folks who are much more thoughtful and expert and do try to continue following on and ride their big companies to really big successes. I haven't done it yet. So I haven't followed on in any 
any of these companies, which makes me annoying, right? I'm like there in the first <laughs> round, but you can't quote unquote count on me to get you through. But that's, I mean, that's what, I mean, uh, founders need to know that when you raise seed rounds and angel rounds, those guys are not going to be funding your next, uh, you know, bridge on the path to nowhere. Like they're in for you to accomplish a bunch of stuff and to help you as much as they possibly can to raise the first venture round. I think it is customary, customary that uh, venture firms, once they put in like, you know, a million plus, you can count on them for another maybe 50% of their dollar figure. Um, I think it's some kind of unspoken customary sort of thing. A lot of folks reserve a certain amount of cash for their investments, but I don't think angels do that, and I don't. Right. On uh, the exits, though, I'm, it's been kind of, you know, not all of these are labeled in the right way, I guess. You're kind of browsing my sarva.co website. Um, how many have I sold things in? Because, you know, one of the really interesting phenomena, so Elite got bought. Elite got bought by somebody big, right, Daily Mail. And I wasn't involved in that hardly at all. I was just, I just got an email about it. So that was cool. Um, the, uh, there are a couple other ones, though, that did really big up rounds, and they offered me liquidity. Like, people wanted to buy more shares than they were offering, and, and they offered to buy out some of the early angels. I took it. Wow. And uh, it has, I don't know, so far it's worked out well for me. Like this company, Ouya, which is on the list. Ouya, yeah. you know, they have now been sold. Um, and it's been discussed, you know, to some hardware company in Taiwan or Hong Kong or something. I didn't get a, a check from that when they sold the company. So I don't know, you know, what, what details are public about or whatever, but I didn't get anything. Um, however, it had started out as a crazy harebrained scheme to make this Android-powered um, gaming console. You plug into your TV, it would only be 100 bucks, super low cost, all the games would be free. It's like a really bold idea. They shopped around to try to raise some venture in the very early days. People were nervous about it. So they did a Kickstarter, and they were one of the biggest Kickstarters in history. They raised, I think, like $9 million or something on Kickstarter. It was really wow. big. Uh, it was around the time of Oculus. So I think it was like Oculus, which raised 2 or $3 million. Ouya raised like eight or nine, and then there might be, oh yeah, Pebble. Pebble might have yeah. been like a million more than, than these guys. So when they raised that Kickstarter, I had invested before the Kickstarter in this, in this angel group at like, you know, a pretty initial valuation, right? The kind of typical thing you might see. And then there was tons of interest. They sold tons of devices. They were totally rolling. They raised money at high valuations from Alibaba and Kleiner Perkins and stuff. So there were opportunities for for some liquidity in there. And that was awesome. That was good. I think that there should be more of that. That would be a real incentive for angels who invest two or three years before the, the big A round or B round. Um, if angels could expect that there might be some windows like that and you don't have to invest two years before plus wait another five years or seven years or something for the company to be acquired. Right. Okay. We'll have to do a segment on angel liquidity. Um, mm -hmm. if, I'm, if I'm a maker entrepreneur out there, uh, what what would be the best working on something interesting? Of course, what would be the best way to sort of get your attention? Is it is it a warm intro? What would you say to people listening? Huh. Yeah, I mean, like you know, right up front, I have my stated no inbound rule, so I make no effort to market myself as somebody that should be you know shown deals or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I would yeah. just hope that somebody who right. already like knows me a lot would say, "Hey, you really this is the mall's the guy for you." Got it. I know you have uh, a couple of companies to run, and we have just a couple more minutes here. Uh, how do you stay abreast of things? Uh, are there any blogs or resources that you read on a daily basis? What's what's your methodology? 
um, I don't do that. Mm. Um, I mean, I am interested in tech, so I just read whatever. I don't know, Business Insider, TechCrunch. I don't really read them slavishly. Like, I don't type in TechCrunch and, like, look at the 50 <laughs> posts from the day. Um, I, I work in the field, you know. I, I get emails from people telling me about things that are happening. And I follow some people on Twitter and, and see what they're talking about. So I'm not a very scholarly academic about following trends in the area. On the other hand, I have, like, such depth, direct exposure to all the real stuff that I, I feel that that actually is a big a big advantage and a big reason why I feel comfortable doing what I do. I, I think I know the answer on a lot of these questions that people are struggling with. And while I have you, what is the thing you spend the most amount of time on right now, entrepreneurially? Well, I run the company Notable. Notable is this app for teamwork. It lets you take notes, share them with people. It's like a next generation idea for productivity. We're in this age right now of all these like standalone apps like Slack or Dropbox or whatever that all are a little space where you do all one thing at a time. And the idea with Notable is you could grab some stuff out of a Dropbox or out of Asana or grab a, a Slack chat and embed it directly into a notepad. And this notepad would be your gathering point for everything. So it's a way of, uh, one way to think about it is reinventing Evernote. If you were to build Evernote from scratch right now, a note is such a simple little idea. So we've been building that. We, um, and I run it, all the people report to me, and you know I keep probably 80% of my time worrying about that. Uh, we launched our first little product from that, which was this Chrome extension called Notes, um, about three months ago. And it's been doing awesome. A ton of people have downloaded it. The daily engagement is super high. And it looks like people really want a futuristic note-taking app. Along the way, um, we found that this little hobby we had been running uh, around our office called the Notel uh, was just growing a ton. So we had started out with like a couple thousand square feet. Now we're at 25,000 square feet on 17th Street near Union Square in New York. And uh, we've just uh, we've just doubled it to 50,000 square feet. We've added a location down at um, the Battery at the tip of Manhattan. And uh, we're going to double it again by January where it'll be 100,000 plus square feet of hosted workspaces where companies can come and run themselves. And so I've been spending a bunch of my time on that the last two months or so um, because it's a pretty big undertaking. Uh, I think startups want flexible places to work, not just startups, all companies. So those are the two big projects that I've been pushing. Okay, you heard it here. If you need startup space in the city, tweet Amol at, at A-M-O-L, at Amol. I'm sure you'll get a response. It, over at my day job, um, for those that are listening, I'm Director of Entrepreneurship at Columbia University. Amol, you've been a huge help to us in all our programs, in our lab, in our workshops. You're coming to my class on Monday. Thank you. Uh, rumor has it that for the first time since 1754, Columbia University is going to have an entrepreneurship class in the college, in the undergraduate ranks, and that you, we've been able to reel you in as a professor teaching that class. Is it, A, is it true? And if so, what are you going to be teaching? Give us a preview. <laughs> yeah, that is, is super cool. I'm, uh, I'm really, uh, I don't know, I'm sort of privileged and honored and, and excited about it. I, I was an undergraduate at Columbia College 20 years ago, and uh, all we did was read, you know, Homer and John Rawls and stuff like that. And um, I think uh, a really like serious, thoughtful approach to what entrepreneurship and venturing and all that means and is about and how to do it and how to think about it and what some of the contrasting views and approaches are. I never got that. I had to just spend all my time working on all this stuff to come up with all my understanding of this stuff. And I think that that is a, a really suitable topic for folks that are interested in a new era 
in the way the world works. I mean, the world has changed a lot and will change more. And people who are in school now are, are either going to work directly in entrepreneurship or right around it. And uh, they need to learn stuff, not just like, hey, do ABC quick launch on Monday, like this really kind of superficial processy stuff, which I think abounds. There are tons and tons of these classes that do that. Um, we're going to do a class that's more, more meaty. It will tell you a little bit about how to do things, but it will be about why and try to arm people with the ideas and the way of thinking about it so that as things continue to change, because they're changing so fast all the time, uh, they'll be well, they'll be well positioned to reinvent the whole approach to entrepreneurship. So yeah, we're going to do that in the spring, I think. Now, what a gift to the students. My friend, uh, we'll have you back in a few months. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? 